Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Gary Kent. This afternoon I want to tell you about the day I met the Queen. Now, when you think of royalty, uh, particularly this year, our minds go to the House of Windsor and Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the second longest reigning British monarch. Uh, and it's amazing when you, when you think about Queen Elizabeth II, uh, during her reign, she has, just imagine this for a moment, she has written over three and a half million letters. Doesn't it make your hand feel a bit tired? She has sent over 175,000 telegrams. She has conferred 404 royal honours, knighthoods and, uh, and so forth. And how about this? Those of you who provided the food this afternoon, thank you very much. But imagine providing food for one and a half million people who have attended her garden parties. She has officiated in 261 overseas visits. She has visited Australia 11 times. Quite a remarkable individual. And you can imagine... It would be a privilege to meet the Queen. Well, I have met the Queen, but not Queen Elizabeth II. Sorry about that. I have met a Queen in a very remote part of this world. I have met personally Queen Bilong Gloria Gibbon Sali. Now, I want you to remember her name, particularly her surname, Gibbon. Now, Queen Gibbon Sali is a queen of the nation of Palau. I don't know how many people here have been to Palau, but I have found Palau to be one of the most magnificently beautiful places on the planet. It consists of a series of magnificent rock islands. It truly is a Pacific island paradise. Situated north of Papua New Guinea, south of the, of the Philippines, it truly is a wonderful place. And it was a, a real privilege for me when visiting Palau to be introduced to the Queen. And what surprised me about my visit with the Queen was to discover that the Queen of Palau is a Seventh-day Adventist. I was running a series of meetings there and uh, it was decided that we would use an interpreter for these, for these meetings. And so I, I asked the people that I was working with, the, the, our team there, to make sure that I had a good interpreter because the message that I wanted to share would only be as good as the interpreter that I had. So they said, look, we will get the best interpreter on the island for you. 
He happens to be the Prime Minister. (laughs) And so it was on one occasion that the Prime Minister of Palau interpreted my presentation. A very interesting, interesting individual. But I discovered, to my surprise, that the Prime Minister of Palau was also a Seventh-day Adventist. A man who mixes in the very highest circles. His name is Johnson Torribiong, President of Palau. Now again, I want you to remember his surname, Torribiong. This is where he does his business, where he operates as president. They call it the White House of Palau. Now, Palau has a population of about 20,000 people. I couldn't believe it when I saw their parliament house, the White House. It's just, it's just the most amazing building on this tiny island out in the middle of the Pacific. It's one of the most impressive buildings that I've ever seen. And here it is on this little island. Um, Here he is addressing the the United Nations, uh, meeting the Japanese Prime Minister on an official visit to the United States of America. Seventh-day Adventist. Then I met his brother. Now his brother has just been inducted into the world scuba diving hall of fame now you might say that's that's interesting but scuba diving out there palau is probably the most famous site in the world for scuba divers and they go to a lot of expense and trouble to get to to palau but here the most important person on the island when it comes to scuba diving is also a seventh day adventist and uh, he's known around the world in fact imax have made a movie that they show on their, the biggest screens in the world about this man, Francis Torribiong. As I, and, I, and just again, notice the surname, Torribiong. As I met with him and the other uh, business people on the island, I was surprised to find that the leading business people on the island were also Seventh-day Adventists. And I began to wonder... How did this happen? What, what has happened to make these people... Here this guy is the most famous scuba diver probably in the Pacific. And they have the most fantastic scuba diving opportunities here. But how is it that they're all Seventh-day Adventists? So I began to do a little bit of research. And I found that it all started many, many years ago with a whaling ship. And a man by the name of James Gibbon. Now, James Gibbon came from the Caribbean, the Caribbean, from the little island of St. Kitts. His father was an Englishman. His mother was a local uh, native of of, of St. Kitts. And uh, James Gibbon was taken to England to be educated. After his education, the best education that money could buy, he joined the British Navy. He joined a man of war. He spent some time uh, in, the, in the Navy. And then he joined a, a whaling ship, started to work on a whaling ship. And he ran afoul of the ship's captain and officers. 
And so they decided that they would do away with James Gibbon. And so they gave him a terrible beating. And then as the whaling ship was passing near the islands of Palau, they threw him overboard, thinking that he would probably drown. And if he made it to shore, the locals would eat him anyway because they thought they were all cannibals. Well, James Gibbon made it to the, to the island of Palau. But instead of eating him, the chief of the island adopted him virtually as one of his own family. And so James Gibbon grew up. He married the, sorry, he, he married the, the chief's daughter and they had 10 children. He lived in the royal household of Palau. Around the same time, a gold miner come woodcarver, come shepherd in California, began to read his Bible, to study his Bible. And as he did so, he discovered the beliefs that we hold as Seventh-day Adventists. Our charter of belief is the Bible. We hold to the Bible and the Bible only. And so as he studied the Bible, as he compared beliefs with others, Abram LaRue became a Seventh-day Adventist. He was so excited about what he discovered. At last he had found fulfillment and meaning in life. And so he decided that he would give up his... He'd become quite a wealthy man with gold mining. He decided to give up his career and to devote his life to sharing this new information that he had discovered with others. And uh, so he contacted the headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and said, look, I want to become a a full-time worker, a missionary or whatever. And he said, "I, I feel a burden to go to China. I want to go and tell the people in China about what I've learned. And they said, well... How old are you? How old are you? By this time, he was 60 when he discovered this message. By this time, he was 65. And they said to him, go home and retire. You're too old. What do you think a man of your age going to China? We have no Seventh-day Adventists in China. What do you want to go to China for? You're too old. Go home and enjoy your retirement. And if you want to go anywhere, go to one of the other closer islands here in the Pacific. So he said, listen, man, I'm going to go anyway. So he got on a a ship, uh, another whaling ship, and he traveled to Hawaii. Now, I got on the internet to see if I could find out anything about this guy. I didn't know they took pictures back there. I found some pictures of Abram LaRue. And I'm going to share them with you. They're pretty grainy and old. But this is Abram LaRue. And I know you can't see it very clearly, but that's in there. I'm going to read you the caption on the picture. The Tract and Missionary Society in Honolulu in 1885. LaRue is standing near the door there. That's him standing there. So here he was. The amazing thing is this. Wherever I read about this guy, wherever I find him, he's wanting to share what he's discovered. 
He wants to share this new lifestyle that he's heard about. He wants to share these new truths that he's discovered in God's Word, the Bible. He was told, you're too old, go home. He's on a boat. He's on a mission. He's off anyway. And wherever I find him, he's busy sharing this new, tr- these new truths, this discovery, this peace of mind that he, is, that he has found. Then I found they were running a tent program. Now, we're we running a program right here. I discover we have a great venue to do it in. Over there, back in those times, they had to be, pitch a tent to, uh, to share their message. And so there's their tent, and uh, guess what? There's our man again. Always got a hat on, long beard. But wherever I find pictures of him, you notice what it says here, a tent effort in Honolulu in 1885, Abram LaRue is on the far, let me see, where are we? The far right. Now remember, the people at the church headquarters had said to him, okay, if you must go, we'd prefer that if you you went home and just enjoyed retirement, but if you feel you must go somewhere, go to an island in the Pacific. So he finds his way to Hawaii. Then as he's speaking to the ship, the the captains of the ships that that pass through this uh, Uh, this part of the world, one of them tells him about another island in the Pacific that is right next to China. What would that be? Hong Kong. So he says, ah, it's an island in the Pacific. There, they said I could go to an island in the Pacific. So he jumps on a a boat and uh, he makes his way to Hong Kong. And for the next 14 years, Abram LaRue worked tirelessly as a coal porter that is sharing books and magazines containing the Bible and its message. And he also established a seaman's mission. So he established a place to offer support for seamen who were in trouble of any, any kind or description. And uh, as I read about him, he also translated sections of Steps to Christ and the Bible, translated them, had them translated into Chinese. And then he made uh, trips into Shanghai and other major Chinese centers to distribute this Bible literature and to share it with the people with the people there. And I found this picture of him sitting with some of the, the sailors that uh, he'd offered support to there in, in, uh, in Hong Kong. So wherever you find him, Abram LaRue is sharing this, the message of the Bible that had become so important to him. He used to go down to the, to the, the harbour. I mean, Hong Kong's, uh, even today, it's known as a place of trade. People come from all over the world. Even back then, that was the case. And so he would go down to the, to the harbour and he would try to share his faith, his beliefs, with the captains of the, of the ships. And most of them he just annoyed. And they became angry with him and said, go away, we don't want to hear about what you found and what you believe. And so finally he would come and he said to the ships, this particular ship's captain, okay, I won't say any more if you'll do one thing for me. He said, if I bring you a stack of little books and tracts, magazines, 
would you give them to the first English-speaking person you find after you leave Hong Kong? So the guy said, look, anything to shut you up. Bring your books, and I'll promise to do that, provided you don't say anything to me anymore. So Abram LaRue took his little parcel of books, Bible and some books and, and magazines down to the harbour. The captain took them, and of course, as he sailed, his first port of call was guess where? Palau. And as he walked the streets of Palau, guess who was the first English-speaking person that he met? It was James Gibbon. Remember the guy from the whaling ship who'd been thrown overboard? He was the first English-speaking person that the captain met. So he gave James Gibbon the books, the magazines, the Bible. James Gibbon didn't have a lot to read in English, and so he read the information that was given to him, and he was convinced about the importance of worshipping on the seventh day of the week, which is what the Bible teaches, and he was just captivated by the idea that Jesus Christ would return a second time to this planet. And he believed it. And as he believed it and as he studied the Bible, he discovered the same peace of mind, the same happiness that Abram LaRue had discovered and that he that, that wanted to, uh, to share. And so James Gibbon maintained this hope in the soon coming saviour until his death in 1904. Now, do you remember how many children James Gibbon and his wife had? Ten. ten. Of those ten children, only one survived. And that was a son by the name of William Gibbon. When World War I broke out, William Gibbon remembered some of the things his father had taught him from the Bible about signs that would indicate that Jesus is coming soon. And so when World War I broke out, he remembered all this and he got his father's Bible and books out again and he began to read them and study them. And like his father, as he read the Bible, as he read this information, this material, he was convinced that this is the way he too should live. And so he too discovered the peace of mind and the happiness that his father had discovered and that Abram LaRue had discovered. And so he decided that he would like to find out if there were any other Christians on the planet who worshipped on Saturday instead of Sunday. And so being able to speak English fluently taught by his father, he would go down to the harbour and every ship that came by, he would ask the same question. Do you know any Christians who worship on Saturday? Eventually he found one captain who said, look, I have heard of, of, uh, of people, Christians, who go to church on Saturday like it says in the Bible. And so he said, I've heard of a guy or somebody by the name of Armstrong who lives in Japan who worships on the seventh day of the week. 
And so immediately William wrote a letter addressed, and this was the only, the only information he put on the envelope, Armstrong, Tokyo. <laughs> you know, Tokyo is a fairly big city. But you know, miraculously, this letter with no address was delivered to Pastor Armstrong, the president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Japan. And so it was decided to send two young Japanese men to Palau. These two men, Ochai and Yamamoto, arrived in Palau and William, uh, uh, yes, uh, the, the, the guy who sent the letter, William, uh, he... he was the first person to study the Bible fully and he became a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, these two young Japanese men, when World War II broke out, the Japanese said to them, well, you're Japanese, you're in our army. Because at that time, the Japanese had occupied Palau. And they said, okay, but we don't believe in killing people for any reason. So they said, we will not carry arms. We won't carry guns to kill people. So the Japanese said, well, if you don't carry guns and join our army, we're going to put you in prison. And so right there on the island of Palau, these two young men were put into, into prison, into a type of concentration camp for refusing to bear arms. While they were in jail, they came to know the jailer, the Palauan jailer, whose name, now get his name, Toribiong Uchel. And these young Japanese missionaries, shall we say, shared their faith, their belief with the jailer. And as a result the jailer discovered what Abram LaRue had discovered, what the whaler here on Palau and his son had discovered. And so after the war, the Palauan jailer, Toribiong Uchul, was baptized and later became the first Palauan Seventh-day Adventist minister. Now, remember those names? Queen Belong Gloria Gibbon Sali. She is the granddaughter of James Gibbon. And so the faith of James Gibbon was carried on by his granddaughter, who today is the Queen of Palau. And so for our parents who whose children were dedicated today. Your influence and the, the impact you make on your children will, in a sense, play a major role in determining their eternal destiny. Now, let's have a look at, uh, at, our, at our Prime Minister, the President of Palau. You notice his name? James Toribion. J- J- uh, J- sorry, Johnson Toribion is the son of of Toribion Uchul, the jailer 
who became the first Palawan Seventh-day Adventist pastor. You know, if you go over to Hong Kong today, those of you who are familiar with Hong Kong, there's a, a well-known part named, named Happy Valley. The race court, the racetrack is there. There's also an isolated, lonely cemetery. And if you visit that cemetery and you go into the far, far corner where nobody goes today, you'll find this tomb. And on this tomb is written these words, Abram LaRue, the first Seventh-day Adventist in the Far East. He was too old. They told him, go home and retire. You know, friends, we are never too old, we are never too young to share the truth of the Bible and the love of Jesus with others. And you know, it's, it's that message, it's that peace that comes knowing that the mistakes we have made in our lives are all washed away and eradicated and gone when we accept Jesus as our Savior. It's the peace that comes knowing that we don't need to carry guilt around anymore. You know, friends, we've all made mistakes in our lives, every one of us. And dare I say it, we continue to make mistakes in our lives. But God does not want us to carry guilt and sin as burdens around with us. And so as we accept Jesus as our Saviour, our sins are forgiven, washed away, they are no more, and we have the peace that comes to those and only to those who know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Peace and security. And friends, that's what people are looking for today. And we go to all different places and we, we look for all different methods to find it. But basically everybody today wants the same thing. You know what that one thing is? People want happiness. Isn't that right? We try to find happiness by our bank balance, through our bank balance, through the car we drive, through the job we have, through the friends and the circle we move in. We all know, we all know deep down that the only lasting happiness is not found in those places. If our happiness is dependent upon the stocks and the shares we own, we can lose our happiness like that. Ask anybody in Greece. I was just reading this week the, how the, the Iranian, what is it, the, the, the real? has just plummeted in the last week. It's just lost nearly all its value against the US dollar. So imagine if you're living in Iran and your happiness and your security was in a big bank balance. All of a sudden it's gone. And I was just sharing with our friends in, in Randwick this, 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 this morning that uh, I've seen that happen firsthand when I was working in Russia in the 1990s. People had saved through those communist years all their lives. They, they'd saved their rubles. And uh, they had hidden them under their beds and they, they, had, they had 
accumulated this wealth in rubles. And you know, it disappeared overnight. The ruble lost its value. It just became worthless. I was carrying around ruble notes, 10,000 rubles. And I could hardly buy a loaf of bread with it. The ruble just lost its value. And it's a reminder that if our security is tied up in the things of this world, friends, there's a better way. There's a better way to find happiness, to have security and peace of mind that nobody can ever take from you, that you can never, ever lose. And it is the the peace that is found in Jesus Christ. Peace and security. You know, coming back to to Abram LaRue, he was part of a of a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now there's a prophecy in the Bible that says, Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord, exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. And so in Palau today, and I I, I had the the privilege of being part of this, this experience, experience it for myself, to see how the message of the Bible is being embraced by the people of the islands of the Pacific. The churches that are there today springing up, being built, as people respond to the invitation to come to know Jesus as their friend. And you know, it's not just in the islands of the Pacific. It's not just in Palau. Do you know the latest census... Here in Australia shows that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is now the fastest growing church in Australia. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is the fastest growing church in North America. You know, friends, that every day, every day, around 4,000 new people become Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Every day, 15 new Seventh-day Adventist churches are built somewhere in the world. Why is it that people are embracing the message of the Bible? Friends, they're doing it for a number of reasons, but there are some very practical ones. Do you know that Seventh-day Adventists live about 10 years longer than their neighbors? They might say, well, where do you get that from? Do I have that? You know, National Geographic, it's a very secular magazine. In fact, National Geographic preaches anything but the message of the Bible. That's what it's designed to do. It's a message, it's a magazine that promotes evolution and, and uh, certainly not the concepts that are contained in this book. But recently, National Geographic did research and study into the secrets of living longer. Very interesting. They went and studied pockets of populations around the world where they have more centenarians than anywhere else. So they went to Okinawa. uh, They went to 
pockets on the, on the Mediterranean coast where people live longer lives than anywhere else. Where they were looking for a group of people in a, in a built-up environment, a busy part of the world. They went to Los Angeles and they went out to Loma Linda. And there they found more people living longer, more people living a hundred and beyond. And they discovered as they studied these group of people that they were Seventh-day Adventists. And of all the groups of people that they studied, the only group that are passing their heritage of long life onto their, their next generation. Because, of course, with the people in these pockets around the world, as soon as Western civilization and the Western diet catches up with them, their life expectancy drops down to the same as everyone else. But Seventh-day Adventists are passing on parents whose children were dedicated today Seventh-day Adventists are passing on their heritage of long life to the next generation. And uh, the reason Seventh-day Adventists live longer is because they follow the fantastic diet that was originally given to mankind. You know, friends, if you buy a car and you want to look after that car, the best thing to do is to get the owner's manual out that is provided by the people who made the car, isn't that right? The people who make the car know what's best for that car, what fuel to put in, what oil to put in, how often to put the oil in. And if you want to know what's best for the human body and how to look after it and what to put into it to make it work better and last longer, then just have a look at the original owner's manual. It's all in here. And Seventh-day Adventists are a living example that it works. Check it out in National Geographic or Time magazine. And I could show you literally a hundred medical journal research studies that show exactly the same thing. Because no group of people on the face of this planet have been studied and researched more closely than Seventh-day Adventists. And all the research shows exactly the same result, the same thing. And so, friends, people are becoming Seventh-day Adventists today for good reason. There are practical reasons. This book tells us how to live life to get the maximum amount of happiness out of life. And so people are becoming Seventh-day Adventists so that they can live better lives. They find peace of mind. It says it all in here, by the way. The reason they live longer is part of the reason is because of their diet. Part of the reason is because of their lack of use of things that are harmful to the body. And part of the reason is because they have found peace of mind. They sleep better. They live longer. And so, friends, there's a reason. And I would like to remind you, I would like to recommend to you this message. The message contained in God's Word, the Bible. And if you accept the message of this book, the good news... For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the heart of this message. A message of hope. A message that brings peace, assurance and security. And as we embrace that message, as we share it with others, we will find the happiness that we are looking for. May God bless you. Let's just bow our heads. We'll close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us and for the many blessings you bestow upon us. Thank you for the truths of the Bible. Thank you for the courage of men like Abram LaRue, people like James Gibbon and William Gibbon, people like those young Japanese missionaries. And Father, may we follow in their footsteps. May we too embrace the love of Jesus. May we accept the message of the Bible. And may we share his love with others. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit Fountain in the City dot com dot au
That was the preacher's daughters with My Savior's Love, Amazing Love. Up next, the Hawks trio will sing It's Under the Blood. While walking down a memory lane I passed so long ago Old Satan came right by my side Making me feel low He brought up thoughts of hurt and pain When I had gone astray He wanted to discourage me As I walked along my way He said you're undeserving Welcome to Answers to the Big Questions. 
I'm your host, Alan Sonter, and I'm glad you could join me. In the last episode, I explained something of what God says about the future. Of course, only a short explanation was possible, and you really need to read the whole story in the Bible for yourself. Much of the information I shared with you comes from the last chapters of the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible. Like any short answer to a complex question, the answer I gave in the last episode raises further questions. The current question, what and where is hell, is one of those that might well arise from what I said about the final destruction of Satan and all his followers. As I've said before in answering these questions, all I can do is let you know what the Bible says on the subject. Many people believe that those who do not accept the salvation offered by Christ go to hell where they burn throughout the endless ages of eternity. They are tortured ceaselessly in the fires of hell without ever actually dying. For those who hold this belief, the prospect of not being saved is a terrifying one indeed. In fact, it's so terrifying that many have gone to extreme lengths in their attempts to ensure that they will be saved. But fear such as is produced by the prospect of hell is a very unhealthy motivation to live a good life and please God. This belief in an eternally burning hell is the grossest insult to a God who has staked the future of the universe on the principle that love and love alone must be the motivation for loyalty to him. How could anyone believe that God who loves us so much that he gave his only son to die in our place so that we need never die the second death would then cruelly torture throughout eternity everyone who did not accept his offered gift of eternal life. That outrageous and blasphemous idea bears all the marks of the way Satan, not God, does business. Satan, as Jesus himself says, is the father of lies. He doesn't care how he achieves his ends, just so long as he turns people away from loyalty to God. We don't have to consciously worship Satan to be on his side. We only need to live by his principles rather than by the principles of God. Jesus said in Matthew 12.30 that anyone who is not actually with him, intentionally on God's side, is against him. So Satan uses two opposite approaches to deceive people into disloyalty to God. On the one hand, he says, God is so loving, he will never actually destroy anyone who doesn't obey him. He only makes threats to frighten people into obedience. You can live however you please. And in the end, you'll have a chance to go to heaven. After all, the Bible says, God is love. Satan has devised several variations on this theme, but they all include the idea that somewhere along the line, even after death if need be, there will be a chance to be reconciled to God and go to heaven. On the other hand, Satan says, God is going to burn you in hell forever if you don't obey him. This approach has its variations as well. If someone has a strong will and can put on a good performance, Satan encourages them to believe that they're able to earn their way to heaven by their good behavior. He tells them that God will have to let them in because they've earned a place there. Such people can be very hard to live with. They're usually quite self-righteous 
and they can be very critical of other people they think aren't performing well enough. In actual fact, such people are living by Satan's principles because they're obeying God out of fear and selfishness, not from love. To those who don't perform so well, Satan says, God is so hard to please that it's really no use trying. You're always doing what you know you shouldn't, and God will get you for that. These unfortunate people may feel they are doomed, no matter how hard they try. They frequently give up trying. They often resent God and hate him for the everlasting punishment they believe he's going to inflict on them. So Satan's lies lead such unhappy people to turn away from God and find what little satisfaction they can in the here and now. In an even unhappier situation are those who, like Martin Luther, before he came to understand the truth of salvation, keep desperately trying to please God. They might even try so hard that they drive themselves into the grave, as Luther almost did. A variation that Satan uses to deceive some into living by his principles is to lead them to believe that if they disobey God during this life, but are not abandoned sinners, God will punish them by sending them to a kind of intermediate place from which they will escape to heaven when their sins have been burned away and they have endured sufficient punishment for the wrong they have done during their lives on earth. All the variations used by Satan to mislead people into believing in eternal punishment or temporary punishment followed by eternal life have a common thread, the idea that human beings have an immortal soul so they can never die. Do you remember the first lie Satan told Eve? He said, you will not die. In an earlier presentation in answer to the question, what is death? I explained what the Bible says about dying. We humans don't have an immortal soul, and we do indeed die if we reject God's provision for our salvation. If there's no immortal soul to burn throughout eternity, why does the Bible use expressions that seem to imply that the fire burns forever? The Bible uses the terms everlasting fire or eternal fire to refer to the punishment God will give to Satan and his followers. But these expressions do not imply that those who are punished burn eternally. The fire which destroys Satan and his followers is eternal fire because its results are eternal. It does not burn for all eternity. It would be a cruel God indeed who would punish people for millions of years, indeed for all eternity, for a few short years of rebellion here on earth. That is not the God I read about in the Bible or the God I serve every day now. But some may ask, what about the words of John in the book of Revelation, chapter 14 and verses 10 and 11, where he says that a particular group of followers of Satan are tormented with burning sulfur, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night? Or what about the statement in Revelation 20, verse 10, about the devil being thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. To understand these expressions, we must look at what the Apostle John would have meant by the words translated into English, forever and ever. The Greek expression refers to a duration of time 
which is, as one scholarly authority put it, as long as the nature of the subject allows. For example, in Jude verse 7, the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is called eternal fire, but clearly it is not still burning. Also in Jonah, in chapter 2 and verse 6, refers to his stay in the belly of the fish as being forever. But of course, he was delivered after three days. So it depends on the context as to what the expression should be taken to mean. To be consistent with other comments in the Bible, such as in Matthew 3.12 and Malachi 4.1, about the wicked being destroyed, the statements I've just quoted should be translated to mean that Satan and his followers will be burnt until they are completely consumed. In the case of Satan, at least, it appears that the process could take longer than an instant. So what is hell and where is it? In the Old Testament, the word hell in English is translated from the Hebrew word sheol and means simply the unseen state. It is this same word that Jonah used when speaking of his being in the stomach of the big fish. The Hebrew word Sheol is often translated as grave. The righteous man, Job, says in Job 17.13 that he would go to Sheol, the grave. The Israelite King David, who wrote many of the Psalms in the Bible, says that the wicked go to Sheol, translated hell in the best-known English version of Psalm 9.17. So as far as the Old Testament is concerned, Hell is the grave. In the New Testament, three Greek words are translated into English as hell. The first is Tartaros, which means a dark abyss, and is the place where, according to the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.4, Satan's angels were sent when they were thrown out of heaven. Peter says that they are kept there waiting for future judgment. There is no idea of fire or burning here at all. The Apostle John in Revelation 12.9 says that Satan and his angels were thrown down to this earth, so the hell where Satan's angels were sent must be wherever Satan is on this earth. The second Greek word translated hell is Hades and means the same as the Greek word Sheol. So it means grave. The best English translations of the Bible actually use the word grave in many cases when translating Hades. The eminent Presbyterian Bible authority Albert Barnes says the Greek word Hades means literally a place devoid of light, a dark, obscure abode. The third Greek word translated hell is Gehenna, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Hinnom, a valley near Jerusalem used as a place to burn the carcasses of animals and even the bodies of criminals. The fire was always kept burning, so it was like the city incinerator. Bible references to unquenchable fire allude to the fact that the fire was continually kept fueled, but it should not be thought that a particular object in the fire would never stop burning. Jesus in Luke 12.5 referred to a person being thrown into Gehenna, or hell, but indicates that would happen sometime in the future. It's clear that where we find the word hell translated from the Greek word Gehenna, 
That hell is the lake of fire that will destroy Satan and his evil angels, as well as his human followers, when God finally puts an end to Satan's rebellion. That hell is the only one where there is a fire, and it will burn only until Satan and his followers are consumed. And it will be found here on the earth outside the city called the New Jerusalem that God brings down from heaven. My friend, you don't need to fear either the grave or the lake of fire if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So you need not fear hell. Even if you choose not to accept Jesus, you'll not burn in hell forever, but you'll miss out on being able to spend eternity with a loving God. Won't you choose Jesus today? You've been listening to Answers to the Big Questions. I'm Alan Sonter, and I hope you can join me next time. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.